This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Welcome to season two of Women Who Travel, the now not so new podcast from Connie Nast Traveler that digs deep into the realities of traveling as a woman today and celebrates why we'll never stay home. I'm Meredith Carey and I'm joined by my co-host, Lala Aracoglu. Hi. We are in the middle of a crazy blizzard recording in the studio. Can't see out the window. It's like we're in a snow globe. <laughs> we're recording this on March 7th, which is International Women's Day Eve. Yes, it is. Happy International Women's Day Eve. Isn't it sad that we have to have a day? <laughs> Just the one. Just one Just day out the of the one. year. Exactly. Um, but it's very exciting um, here at Traveller. We've been working on a whole host of stories to honor all these incredible women that travel around the world and work with us and tell us um, their stories. Um, so when this goes live, this will all be live on the internet. And... We wanted to kick off the new season by talking to two women who have contributed in different ways to Traveller. Julia Buckley, who's written for us for years. I think you've been writing for us for longer than I've worked here, Julia. I think I have. That's quite depressing. (laughs) (laughs) It's only been two years, so it hasn't been that long. So you are, and you're based right now on this call, you are in? I'm in London. Okay. Um, And it's very late, and I'm getting ready to go into the office tomorrow and then I'm going off to Bologna on Friday. Oh, Um, so nice. (laughs) And we're also joined by Alicia Kazarian, who worked with us on a piece about her travel experiences that is going live with our Women Who Travel package on International Women's Day. And we will talk all about that in a few minutes. And you are also very far away from us in New York. You are in... I am in San Francisco right now. The time zones, guys, are so vast. <laughs> How's the weather in San Francisco? I bet it's a vast improvement. Oh, it is beautiful. I'm looking out the window right now at the bay, and it's not a cloud in the sky. Oh my gosh. Jealous. <laughs> we can't see the building next to us. So starting out, Alicia, do you kind of want to talk to us about um, your travel journey? Because um, I know you have a very specific incident that kind of flipped everything upside down for you. So I, wow, how do you even start this? <laughs> um, a couple summers ago, I was up in Eugene, Oregon, which is where my university is located. Um, and I was there between um, my junior and senior year, just finishing up some classes to try and make my senior year a little bit uh, lighter. And I was living with two of my really good friends. And every weekend, we would just spend our time getting to know the state of Oregon and going on different hikes and different adventures all around. 
And uh, so on one of the weekends, it was just, you know, another typical Sunday. Um, my friend and I drove out to Smith Rock State Park, which is a little outside of Bend, Oregon. And uh, we decided to do a hike once we got there. So we started in on the Misery Ridge Trail and made our way up. It was like 100 degrees outside. And once we made it to the top, we took some time to rest and grabbed onto a rock that I had grabbed onto before. So I thought it was sturdy and it wasn't. Uh, It broke off. And so I flew backwards and landed on my bum. Um, To this day, I do not know whether it was eight feet, 10 feet, 15 feet. I'll just round it. Let's say it was 10 feet. Um, So I fell 10 feet back onto my bum and my vertebrae shoved up into each other and I shattered my L2 vertebrae and then proceeded to roll off the side of the trail from there down the side of the mountain for another I want to say like 35 to 40 feet, maybe. In that moment, I thought, oh, wow, okay, I, I guess I'm dying. This is it. And um, and then all of a sudden, I just sort of like snapped out of it and tried to claw my hands like in any way that I could to just grab onto anything. And I, I don't know if that helped or, if, you know, the slowing of gravity did or whatever. But uh, eventually the falling came to a stop and I was like laying on my stomach on the side of the mountain, just like holding on so tight. And I tried to like move my legs to climb back up to the trail and it wouldn't move. And I like distinctly remember sending the signals down like, okay, lift right leg up and nothing happened. Okay, lift left leg up and nothing happened. And this is like such a funny memory that I just thought of now. But in that moment, remember the scene in the wedding planner when Jennifer Lopez like almost gets hit by a car and yes. she she wakes up in the hospital and she's like I'm paralyzed I'm paralyzed so that was like the first thing that thought popped in my head literally that scene in the movie I had so many like weird funny thoughts like that um and then I so yeah I like screamed that in my head and then laughed in my head after that um but yeah, in that moment, I kind of knew what had happened. And uh, my friend who was with me was able to, like, very carefully slide down to be next to me. And um, so she was, she's a, was pre-med and she's heading down the, the medical track. And so she was trying to, like, just apply any sort of knowledge that she could to the situation and was sort of explaining, you know, it could have been the shock around your spinal cord or there's swelling, something like that. You know, we don't know that it's a spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm all there was left to do was just wait for rescue team to come out and take me out to the hospital and took about seven hours to get everyone out there, rope me up, get me down the side of the mountain, down all the switchbacks across the river, through some shrubs and up into an ambulance to take me over to St. Charles hospital in Bend, Oregon. That was where I met with the um, neurosurgeon who would be doing my two surgeries And he was the one who told me that I did indeed have an L2 burst fracture, uh, spinal cord injury. And I didn't know much about spinal cord injuries then, but I I definitely knew that, you know, it's obviously not good. And I asked him, I said, am I going to walk again? And um, he said, no, that's very unlikely. And I remember trying to negotiate with him, like, are you sure? Like, you're absolutely positive. And he was like, yeah, no. Um, so in that moment, I kind of decided like shit happens, but 
it's going to be okay. And I had no idea what life in a wheelchair would be like, nothing to go off of. But for some reason, I had this like innate feeling that everything was going to be fine. And after 12, 10 to 12 weeks of inpatient rehabilitation at Craig Hospital in Denver, I was able to get back to somewhat of my normal life or like my new normal. And I went back up to school and uh, was able to finish my degree and everything um, and just had like a beautiful support system for my family and friends and everyone from the University of Oregon and everyone back in California and um, everyone really came together to make sure that, you know, I was able to have like as smooth of a transition as possible. But in my senior year during winter term, so it was the first term back uh, up at the U of O, I was sort of trying to think ahead about, okay, I need know I need to make up uh, two of these classes. I know I'm not going to be able to shove this all in in my next two terms there. Like, there's no way. Uh, so I have two options. Either A, stay in Eugene, Oregon for another summer, or B, look into what other options were there. And so I went to the study abroad office and I just went up to the front desk. I didn't even know what to say. I was just like, hey, I might want to study abroad. And I know I'm in a wheelchair and that might sound complicated, but I'm just like down to talk to anyone about it. And they were a little like, we'll take it back. I don't think, I, I honestly don't know if they've ever sent anyone in a wheelchair abroad before, but everyone was just so gung ho. They're like, okay, well, we don't know exactly what we're doing, but let's figure this out. And so I chose a program in Vienna, Austria, because it had the exact two classes that I needed. It was just like all worked out so perfectly. A few months later in June, I got on a plane by myself to Vienna, Austria to study international marketing and consumer behavior for six weeks there. And so this was all like less than a year after my accident. No, and I remember when you were sharing your story with me and two things really stood out to me. One was that you said that, you know, as you were falling, all the places that you hadn't seen yet flashed before your eyes. Um, mm -hmm. And that also, I remember you also saying that you're incredibly stubborn and <laughs> you came to the conclusion that nothing was going to stop you from just doing what you wanted to do, even if it meant being in a wheelchair and I think I mean that to me is just like so incredibly admirable but also I think has really set the tone for for what your travels sound like now and I and I think your approach to traveling um mm -hmm. and I know that I mean Julia I'd love to hear a little bit about your story but I'd be interested to know whether you share that stubbornness and that determination when encountering barriers to travel and overcome them um, yeah, I think, I think definitely I do. I think the lucky thing for me was that I, I was, I was a travel journalist before I, I mean, I don't, it's bad. I don't even like calling it an accident compared to something like Alicia's been through. But what I call my accident, the thing that um, tipped me over into disability, really, I was already a frequent flyer before that. So I knew what flying was like and what you can get out of travel. And as soon as I started traveling with a disability, it was so awful, just the very physical process of traveling and going through airports and being on planes that it was horrendous, but I knew what it could be like. And so I think that kept me going where I sometimes will be on a plane with someone who, for instance, I met a lady who hadn't hadn't been 
on holiday since she had been in a wheelchair and it was over 20 years and it was her first flight and she was connecting and I was connecting at Gatwick with her and of course they broke her wheelchair and she was devastated and was saying I knew that I should not have come on holiday I knew that I couldn't do this and I said no you can because it's not supposed to be like this and because because I am really stubborn and I can get really um angry and kind of I know my rights with people I stayed with her and I said to the people at the airport who were trying to fob her off and say there's nothing we can do I was saying no this is legally what you have to do for her so I think I'm really lucky in that I kind of knew how great travel was before um all this happened but if I don't know if if I hadn't been a great traveler before that I don't know if I could have had the courage really to do it because I found so much has gone wrong for me. Like, it's very rare that I will make a flight and haven't been reduced to tears <laughs> by somebody or something. So, yeah, I, I guess I am stubborn, but I also know how great it can be. Definitely agree with everything uh, that you were saying. It was, like, the same situation for me. I had done a lot of traveling like with my family and friends prior, and so just knowing in my head what it could be was, like, the ultimate motivator, and then having that stubborn personality is what helps, like, Maybe definitely push through those uh, tear, tear uh, moments, tearing up moments. And so, Julia, you have a book that has just come out in the UK, correct? I do, yes. Called Heal Me in Search of a Cure. And it's out here in the States in October. And that's really, um, from what I gather, about your personal experience traveling. Yes. So it's about um, what happened to me. Essentially, I was born with a genetic condition called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome that does things like it can dislocate joints, it can cause chronic pain, it can have all these all these symptoms and side effects. Obviously, nobody knew that I had it and I didn't get diagnosed till I was 31, and that's a whole other story. Um, so I was always growing up in pain and ill, but I also had travelled and had studied languages and had always wanted to travel in my work. So I was... Um, ticking along then I was at work one day in 2012 and I was writing actually writing about um, Mediterranean cruises and then wine cruises around Europe Um, and I had a load of work to do because I was actually going on holiday at the end of the week and so I was hammering out this piece about wine cruises and I was aware that there was something really wrong with my arm and that it was really hurting and it felt like fire ants were sprinting up and down it but because I'd always been in pain and always had problems with my arm I carried on finished my piece about wine cruises leaned back in my chair to stretch lean forward to get a cup of coffee and I just knew immediately that something had happened it was like it felt like a carving knife had been rammed up my armpit like my whole right arm was on fire there was a bonfire under my shoulder blade um And that was day one of four years of pain that didn't end. Um, It was, it plunged me into this whole world, new world of pain and disability because I'd been able to function before, but it left me completely unable to function. So I had to move back home with my mum because I couldn't, I couldn't care for myself really. I couldn't dress myself. I couldn't cook, clean, do anything. Um, And I was off work for two years, kind of going through the, the medical routine and going through that routine and trying to find a cure that didn't work and then I was incredibly depressed oh yeah yeah you know, it's only just occurred to me how important travel is to me in this whole story <laughs> um 
I was incredibly depressed and wanted to be dead, actually, if I can be honest. Um, and I have a really good friend in LA who's English and is very kind, and he knew how I was feeling, and he said, I want to come home for three weeks, and I've got a cat. Why don't you we swap houses, come and look after my cat for three weeks? And I thought, okay, this is going to be my one chance to kind of get on a more even keel or see if I can think about where I'm going to go with my life because I've been told I would never work again. Um, and so I managed to book a flight to LA, got off the plane, thought I was dying, um, like I'd been run over by a bus. It was horrendous. And I Googled for a massage, went to this guy who claims to have angels guiding him as he massages and I just thought it was the most LA thing that you could imagine. <laughs> you just put it on Facebook and rip him for it. And actually, I walked out of his little massage cupboard um, feeling better than I had in two years. Um, and my pain levels were massively diminished. And it was like he'd kind of opened a door that had been closed to me. And this is just this random man called Kevin with a tattoo of Jesus on his arm. <laughs> So anyway, that was kind of my turning point. And I thought, if this guy can do more for me in, 20, in 90 minutes than, um, than my doctors have in two years, maybe I need to be looking at other stuff. I need to be looking at the mind-body connection. Maybe I need to be looking at other people with Jesus tattoos. You know, maybe there is a better <laughs> out there. Maybe I can look at what other cultures have to offer. And it was so nice because all my career and my love of travel kind of came together in this idea of, hey, you can go around the world and kind of look at what other cultures are doing. So I stayed three weeks in LA. And by the end of those three weeks, I was working part time again. I was going for tiny walks in the canyons. I was still in pain. And I still had to stop every 10, 15 minutes and rest. But it was completely it was like being given my life back. It was incredible. I actually had to get the book deal in between because I didn't have any money. So I had to get some money to be able to do the travels. But I then started picking out where I was going to go in the world. So I was looking for cultures that really had a better grasp, perhaps on patient psychology or the mind-body connection than we do. Um, so I went around for two years on and off, like doing a trip and then coming home. So then travel kind of turned into this desperate desperate desire to be cured and this quest and I got a spoiler alert sorry I got I got cured in Brazil in 2016 um so it's so strange I've never thought about it in these terms before but yeah travel literally gave me my life back um and I don't have pain anymore so I still have my same genetic condition so I'm still incredibly prone to injury so I still do request assistance at airports and things like that when I'm traveling because I know that I can injure myself and I'm terrified that I'm going to do another 2012 and reach for a cup of coffee and have another four years of work and I don't want that so I do I am still really wary when I travel um but yeah now I'm kind of back traveling for pleasure again which is amazing when you were talking earlier Julia about the woman where they broke her wheelchair at the airport or when you're having issues and it seems to always devolve into tears for you two what is the biggest challenge that you face when you are just trying to get where you need to go and it could be on a plane it could be in the airport it could be anywhere what would you say is like the biggest uphill battle that you face oh my god where to choose from um 
I think the biggest stress is, yeah, definitely something happening to my wheelchair uh, because I have heard like so many horror stories about that and knocking on a lot of wood right now. I have not experienced that yet, but I, I know the day is probably coming. Um, but yeah, just if anything happens to the chair, that that's it. Like those are my legs. I don't have alternatives. I, I, I mean, I, I guess I could put my leg braces on, but that limits me to maybe walking around for, you know, five minutes and that's it. And that's not the type of traveler I am. I want to be able to like roll around, you know, 12 miles if I want to during the day. Um, so yeah, I think it it really is just something happening to the chair because no matter where you go in the world, even if you are in the U S or wherever else is great at accessibility, there, there's always going to be some sort of like accessibility issues. And I've, learned that the more I've come across, the better I am at thinking resourcefully on how to like work around them. Um, so that, that used to be my biggest worry, uh, but now it's definitely not anymore. Um, so I guess I just have to stick with the, the wheelchair breaking one. That one definitely freaks me out. And so when you say thinking resourcefully, uh, what do you mean exactly? Um, let's see. When I was in, uh, Vienna, my friend uh, came out to visit me uh, while she was doing her, um, you know, tour around Europe after senior year. And she and I, <laughs> we love shopping, we love clothes. And so we were going into one of the shops and it was a two-story shop, but it didn't have an elevator. And um, she said, you know, well, let me go upstairs. I'll check to see if it's anything good, if it's worth, you know, maybe me bringing stuff down for you or not. Uh, are you getting up there somehow? And I was like, okay, great. So she comes back down. She looks me dead in the eye and it's like, Alicia, this is so worth it. And so I got out of my chair and sat on the steps and proceeded to scooch my booty up the flight of stairs, um, which is actually a really, really funny event. The the store owner was like mortified. Um but just seeing this girl like sitting on the stairs, pulling herself up, but you know, something like that, if there's steps there, that doesn't, you know, I can't walk up them, but I, my arms can help push me up. So that's one. Um, another is not all of the elevators work all the time, or sometimes there aren't even any, even like elevators from like where tra- pu- uh, different public transportation spots. And so uh, that's when I learned how to take an escalator with my chair, just by like rolling up to it. And I had one of my friends sort of hold onto the back to make sure I didn't slip backwards while I held on to the two sides. Um, so just things like that, just think, not looking at things as a barrier, just as a obstacle course, really. Like, how do you get through it? Uh, so those are two of the examples. But did that make sense? Yeah, totally. Um, and Julia, I know you've written before um, about as someone who like can walk into the airport feeling like um, people maybe are judging you for using the wheelchair. Do you feel like there are a lot of misconceptions about you using those services um, as someone who's dealing with chronic pain and obviously um, an invisible disability? Oh, absolutely. That's, I mean, that's for me is the worst thing about traveling is that nobody believes you and they're just, it's so emotionally taxing having to go through an airport with an invisible disability that actually I still do, even now I go around saying to everyone, I'm cured, my pain is gone. 
But if I'm traveling and going through an airport, I will take my stick with me that I haven't had to use to walk with in two years because it's just a signaling tool to make people think twice before they come out with the rude thing that they're going to say to me or the dirty look that they're going to give me. So I just, and it's leopard print as well. So it's so in my face and I just kind of like throw it at people almost. They just hold it up and say, I, before I even speak to them, I say, I've got this and I'm going to need help. Um, yeah, it's it's really difficult. Obviously, in a lot of ways, it's amazing having an invisible disability because you can you can kind of you can pass as normal, and there are so many things that you can do that other people with more visible disabilities can't. Um, but for something like this, most people, whether it's in a hotel or an airport, they're not trained in things like this. They think. I mean, I've been accused of being drunk before when I've asked for a wheelchair even though it's been pre-booked two days ahead as if I was planning my my stint um I've been accused of wanting to finish my coffee and make a phone call and that's why I'm booking a wheelchair as if I'm some kind of empress um it's I've had people look me up and down I just it's it's oh I've had people think that I'm pregnant before as well um which is really nice and flattering <laughs> that and I said no I just can't lift oh you're pregnant no no I, I actually my my shoulder's gonna actually pop out of its socket um no it's it's horrible and I think that's the most unpleasant thing for me because I've had I was once being transferring at Heathrow from a flight a short-haul flight to a long-haul flight and we were going to miss the plane because my flight coming in had been delayed and also because if you're in a wheelchair, they normally will take you to the front of the queue so that the person pushing you doesn't have to wait so long. Um, and some woman that we were, like, had actually not pushing past, but we'd said, so he'd said, sorry, I need to take this lady to the front. And she looked around and says to the whole queue, oh, I wish I could get to skip the queue. And I looked at her and I said, well, I wish that I could stand in the queue instead of having to be sat in this chair but you know we're all asking for different things aren't we um I've had other people I don't know I was on Air Europa on a flight once and they couldn't understand why I'd arrived at the gate in a wheelchair and then got up and walked to my seat as if there was some kind of miracle happening (laughs) (laughs) you have to be in it and stay in it and people don't and again if you're going through security if you get up and say oh I I can I can walk through this but no 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 you don't have to and I say no it's actually better because if you start searching me and squeezing my arm you're going to hurt me more I'd much rather walk through it's this strange thing that and people can be so sarcastic about it because they assume that you're doing it to I don't know get a better seat or get better treatment or something so it's quite quite emotionally taxing um going through an airport with an invisible disability. Um, when you guys think about the ways that you wish those things could change, what are things that you think are like easy fixes? Um, is it training? Is it visibility? Is it interaction? Like what are things, specific things that you think the industry could change, the travel industry could change, you know, quickly or easily that they just haven't done for some unknown reason? I would love to see more training. That would take a day, a week to train people in compassion and to train people into just understanding that there are myriad disabilities and problems out there. I mean, you have airlines like Virgin Atlantic are really good and they'll have, they'll produce videos about Alzheimer's um, and things like that for people to watch. So 
people can recognize symptoms of people in people um and i think that does make a big difference i think a lot of people are quite jobs worth and even people who are working in special assistance in airports will look funny at you if you're young or you don't look ill um and they'll also they'll tell me all the time i get told about oh well we took these people off this flight and it's notorious this flight for people just wanting help with their luggage and i say well you don't know that they just want help with their luggage maybe they actually need the assistance so i think training is really important and the other thing that i would love to see at airports is more more openness and willingness to work with Obviously, it's my bugbear, but with invisible disabilities, because a lot of the time now, especially now that my pain is gone, and it's more about protecting myself from my weird body that likes popping in and out. I don't need a wheelchair to get to the gate because I can walk that now. I didn't used to be able to, but I can. But if I want someone to lift my suitcase up into the overhead locker when I get onto the plane, because otherwise my shoulder might dislocate, I have to book that wheelchair and I have to have someone push me for 15 minutes to the gate you can't really chop and change um and the main london airport so heathrow and gatwick they've both very recently introduced these new lanyards that are meant to signify invisible disabilities and it's meant to be kind of freeing up the staff for people like me who just i can't stand in line for example at passport control because my blood vessels are so baggy that my blood starts pooling and I can pass out. So I have to skip the line. Now, before I would have to go in a wheelchair to skip that line. Now with these new lanyards, I can walk up to the disabled passport control point and say, hey, I've got this. Please, can I just go through and skip the queue? And I can. And it's just really helpful, practical things like that for me as well. It gives me more autonomy as a traveller. I don't have to ask permission to stop and go to the loo. I don't have to feel like a child being told you have to be back at this point at this time because we're going to take you here. It's so much easier for everyone. And it's kind of strange that that more airports aren't doing that. And on that point of autonomy, Alicia, I know you've talked a lot about how travel kind of really helped gain your confidence back and to feel independent and I remember you talking about a trip you took to London where you um rolled like 10 miles around the city (laughs) that day and how it was a real kind of turning point for you would you say that because maybe the travel industry and also just like infrastructures around in big cities like London that maybe aren't um, particularly accessible does building that confidence feel like much more of an uphill struggle because of that? I think that sort of depends on the type of person that you are maybe because, well, uh, it also depends on like my mood that day. So my mood that weekend was <laughs> in a very, very positive mood. And so any sort of issue or struggle that came my way, I was like, well, fine, I'm going to figure out a solution. Like it just turned into a challenge for me um, and like an exciting one that I wanted to figure out a solution to. But then again, there really have also been times where I've just been like, like, shit this just this really sucks and like this is and and just knowing from my travel experiences before like this would not happen if I was able-bodied those moments were definitely frustrating so like honestly it really depends on the day um but you know you I what's helpful to remind myself is even pre-accident there were issues that came my way when I was traveling there you know it's not it's it's not totally 100% easy for anyone, I'd say. Um, 
and if it is, I'd love to chat with them and get their advice. But um, so just, you know, reminding myself that sort of everyone has their, their issues when they're doing something as big as like international travel like that uh, is a bit helpful. But yeah, there are definitely days where it was also very disheartening. Do you guys have any specific places um, that you're like, wow, this this tourist destination or this, you know, hidden gem, as cliche as that sounds, um, is really accessible to people like me? Um, yeah, I definitely loved being in, um, in Vienna for that summer. I mean, that really was the perfect place to do the study abroad experience from public transportation, whether it was like taking the underground metro or the above ground buses to every single public building that we went into, to my apartment, to the university um, and the classrooms that we studied at. It was all very, very accessible. And I'm having trouble remembering a time where things weren't accessible. I think there was one event where we went to the Freud Museum and they didn't have an elevator up, um, but I was with a squad of quite a few lovely young gentlemen who were willing to uh, share their strength and <laughs> carry me up. Um, but other than that, that was sort of the only thing that I can think of there. So I highly recommend Vienna to anyone who's in a wheelchair. Um, I, I have two places that really stuck out to me and I think it's probably because I didn't expect them to. One of them was Istanbul, where I found things like the trams and public transport were not only accessible for me. Obviously, I'm talking about I was limping around with a stick. I wasn't in a chair. Um, but everyone was also incredibly kind. Like, I would get on, and instead of in London, you have to kind of publicly shame someone into giving you a seat and stand right in front of them and clear your throat really loudly. Um, in Istanbul, everyone immediately, as soon as I got on, leapt out of their seats, put me in a comfy place, asked if I was good. Um, so that was really lovely. And also they had free entry at museums and places for, for me. And the other weird place that I didn't expect it to be at all was China. Um, I went to Shanghai and found that really very accessible, you know, separate queues at museums and galleries, places like that. And then I've been to Chengdu as well. And again, it's the same. Chengdu is not so accessible kind of on a street level, but at places like they have so many great, really modern museums in China. And I'm kind of a museum and a history freak. So I go to all of them, but they were all accessible and they all had discounts for people like me and they all have separate queuing systems. And I was really surprised by that. Um, which probably doesn't say great things about me that I was, but I, I was. <laughs> yeah, just to add on to what Julia was saying also, um, I've definitely had quite a few travel experiences where maybe the accessibility wasn't up to par, but um, like for instance, when my family and I went to Armenia, which is very close to um, Turkey and all of Istanbul, um, we, you know, the, the country itself is a very, very old country. The city of Yerevan is a very, very old city. And so accessibility wasn't all that great, but the people were just like made all the difference. And it, it was people who were, they were willing to help, but they weren't being, you know, obnoxious or patronizing or pushy about it. It was very respectful and, um, and, and they knew where their uh, lack of accessibility spots were. And, 
um, were just trying to do what they could to sort of offset that uh, disadvantage. Um, so that was that was nice. The people can definitely be wonderful in places that you go to as well. And I would say it's really strange that you kind of see national stereotypes coming through for good and for bad. Like I went to Spain when I was at a really, really poor point. And I remember going into a bar with my then boyfriend and saying, oh, there's nowhere to sit down. We can't, we can't stay here. And I wasn't going to ask anyone to move. And he's even more of a wuss than me. and wasn't going to ask anyone to move. And anyway, these people in Madrid, they heard us, understood English, and immediately got up and said, why don't you sit there? Just, just offered. And I just thought, oh, that's so Spanish. That would never happen in the UK. And then in Italy, um, I've used since a lot, well, at their airports and also on their trains. And again, everyone is so kind. They have the crappiest wheelchairs for you, especially some passengers. But most of the um, most of the stations in Italy, but so kind the people putting you on the trains, and they talk to you and treat you like you're a human, not a piece of meat that just has to be passed from A to B. And that's so special for me. And I don't care how uncomfortable the train is or if it was late or anything like that, because to me it's travel for me is all about people and talking to people and making relationships and seeing new cultures through people. And that kind of adds another dimension to it. And it's really fascinating to me to see how the national stereotypes come through. Let's talk about Paris or maybe not, because that was not quite the same experience as I've had in Italy and France and Spain. It was really, really fascinating actually. Do you find that there are, you know, like, uh, so earlier when we were talking about, you know, people giving you dirty looks or maybe the Parisians not being so pleasant to you, Julia. Um, do you find that there are like questions that you wish people would ask you or things that they would talk to you about so that that like awkward encounter didn't have to happen? My thing, I don't know if this is like the right thing to say, because I don't, I also don't want to like speak on behalf of all disabled people are all people in wheelchairs. Um, but at least for me in particular, I can definitely feel when people are staring and I can definitely feel when they're sort of asking questions in their own mind. Um, and, and I really just wish that they would just ask it out loud and we could get it over with. And I, cause I don't mind talking about it. I don't mind explaining. And if it helps them learn something about people in wheelchairs or people with spinal cord injuries or any sort of disability, then to me, that seems like a good thing. But then I can also see how that could get annoying after a while. So now I'm not sure how much I love that answer. But at least for me, that's something that I would appreciate. And then another thing is, how do I explain this? Like leaving the control in my hands would be great because there have been many experiences where I've gone to the airport oh my gosh at Charles de Gaulle is the worst um so I you know was in line going through and people all like in the security people just started like touching like you you don't just like go up to someone and and push their you know push their wheelchair with you in it and you know start touching this person and without even asking um so or um like I'm trying to think was the thing that really bothered me. Um, I think just not looking at you like you are a real person, just like what Julia said, just more of just an item that needs to be transported from place A to place B. 
is something that's uh, very disheartening. And so I wish people would be a little bit more apt to ask, okay, you know, what works for you? Would you like me to push you in your wheelchair? Would you like to push yourself? Um, can you can you lean to the, the side like this? Or would you like me to help you lean over? You know, what works for you? I think that's something that definitely uh, would mean a lot to me if that started happening more often. Because my first breakdown meltdown in an airport was uh, at the one in Paris when that whole like all of those things started happening uh, when no one asked what I wanted no one asked what worked best for me they just did what worked best for them even after saying please can you not do that or like I clearly don't even have handles on my wheelchair so I I would love to push myself you know things like that and they just wouldn't listen so yeah no I completely agree and I've had times so I travel with a little carry-on case every single time I meet my wheelchair person and they sit me in the thing they will go to physically without asking part my legs and um, the case in between my legs and I'm so good now at kind of anticipating it and they can see them going for it and I go don't do that I'd like you to put it on my knees and I still have these weird arguments with them and these kind of tussles over it and they'll say no no no, we put it between your legs and I go no it's easier for me (laughs) on my knees please and sometimes I'll be wearing a dress or a skirt and they're still trying to do it and sometimes I have to make up oh no I have a problem with my legs that's why I want it on my knees and it's just like actually I just don't want you to be doing that to me without asking my permission it's there's no other circumstance that you could do that and it's people just don't they don't seem to get it um it depends on how I'm feeling whether I want to be asked questions or not I know that there have been several times because I don't look ill and you know I'll be with a stick and I don't have a cast on my leg or anything so there have been lots of well not lots handful of times when I've been traveling in the winter from the UK and someone has kind of looked me up and down and go oh did you have a skiing accident and when I was really really poorly and in so much pain and thought this was going to be for the rest of my life that would really get me upset because I was like no I don't it's a disability and it's never going to get better um and then I would feel embarrassed because they look embarrassed and they would not talk to me for the rest of the time and it would be really awful so it's hard to know how to respond now I wish I wish that people would talk to me so that I could teach them about invisible disabilities and how they could be doing things a bit better. I think a really good question to ask is, is there anything we can do to make this easier for you? Or what can we do to make this easier for you? Or just like Alicia was saying, how would you like to do this? Because everyone is different. Every disability is different. And I think a lot of the time people who are dealing with things like this, they they learn their rules and they know, oh, you put the suitcase in between the person's legs and they're not they're not thinking about what would be good for that person and for me for example I used to find that the seats they tried to assign me for disabled people were never the seats that I needed because I have different needs and I had a trap nerve in my arm or whatever was going on with my arm I used to call it a trap nerve to try and make it understandable to people and I would need that never to be it couldn't be rubbing up against a window or it couldn't be rubbing up against someone next to me because it would be too painful so they the seats they would always try to shove me in I would have to kind of fight my way out of oh no but these are the disabled seats and I would go well I don't really care this is the kind of seat that I need um and things like even asking for extra pillows on planes have to have an extra pillow to support my neck and one for my arm and people just they wouldn't get it but if someone just said at the beginning of your flight 
what can we do to make this easier for you? Then you could give your little list of what you need. And then it kind of ends the awkwardness with everyone. They're not looking at you wondering, oh, what's wrong? What can we have? You can volunteer the information that you want. You can either say, I need an extra pillow, or you can say, it's because I've had this trapped nerve in my neck and my arm, it feels like it's on fire right now and it's kind of an inferno and it would really help. So I think I think that's quite important to to offer it up and open up the space for the actual person to talk and tell you what they want. I, I feel like you, you've really emphasised, um, you know, you've made yourself visible in the travel space and... You know, Alicia, I know we talked about this, um, but how important is it for um, you to make yourself visible? Why Why do you feel like you um, that that's the sort of traveler you want to be on social media? And for um, our listeners, Alicia has founded this amazing Instagram account that everyone should follow called Wheelies Around the World um, that um, shows Alicia on her travels, but also other travelers using wheelchairs in all these amazing places from national parks to landmarks on different continents and it's great and I would love Alicia for you to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah thank you for all the kind words about wheelies but by the way thank you. Of course. (laughs) Um, So when I was going through my rehabilitation at Craig in the first few weeks Um, (laughs) your girl had a lot of downtime. I was like stuck in bed for hours on end, um, just because it takes a long time for you to be able to like sort of even sit up in a chair for, um, even 20 minutes in the beginning, you know, your blood pressure is all funky at first. So in that downtime, I was doing what every 21 year old girl would do with their extra time. And I was flipping through Instagram. Um, and my main aim when I was going through Instagram was just to like get a better idea of what my life was going to look like. And a a great way to sort of get a snapshot into other people's lives is through Instagram these days. I mean, um, that's like what it it's for. And so I would literally just search the hashtag wheelchair girl and like something like that. And just to, you know, look on other women's pages and just try and, you know, get a better idea of what my future was going to look like for me. Uh, Because if I, you know, I thought to myself, if I knew what it was going to look like then, and if I knew that there are other people out there who were living their lives and living their lives fully and happy, then I knew I could do it too. Um, I just needed to be able to see like one other person doing it. And that was enough for me. And ended up finding like a whole world of people out there who were living their lives fully and happy and, you know, like wearing cute clothes and stuff. They weren't, they were, I thought I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have to wear like sweatpants and stuff forever. Cause I'm not gonna be able to like do this myself. Um, and just, you know, just seeing what like just normal people were doing. And so for me, every time I make a post on my personal page about travel or on wheelies around the world, I'm just thinking about like one me three years ago in a hospital bed, just searching out, trying to see one other person like me who's who's doing it really well. Uh, I think about that girl, and then I just think about you know everyone else who's starting off with this injury, in, injury or currently going through this injury, or even a you know a different injury. It doesn't have to be a spinal cord. Just someone who's sort of living their lives um, and, and being happy, and you know living fully and traveling and doing all the things that they love to do. And, um, so 
that's just sort of, you know, the visual piece that I, I hope, um, if someone sees it, that it, it gives them the motivation or the inspiration or that, that sense of hope that I felt when I first started, you know, seeing people who were in this new community I joined. And for you, Julia, you, you know, obviously have written Heal Me, but a lot of your, you know, journalism work before that has been either writing about your own experiences or reporting on the experiences of others um, and the trials that they've kind of come up against. What does not only like being a visible part of that community, but giving, you know, not necessarily a platform, but just like making sure that other people's issues are being listened to and heard. Um, you know, like what, what is the importance of that to you? It's, it's so important to me. Um, I kind of feel like if I have, oh, it's hard to say it without signing up myself, but if I have a kind of platform or I'm in the travel industry and people might listen to me a bit more, I think it's so important to use that platform and that voice to be able to explain what is going on to other people and what happens. And it's kind of... Um, for me, it's less it's less inspirational and more kind of bringing bringing me back down to the earth and showing how things can go, go wrong and and why they're going wrong. So, for example, I wrote a story a couple of months ago about a woman who has the same condition as me, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and she had been going through an airport in the UK, which should probably remain nameless, um, and she'd had problems and ended up basically, she said, being told by someone at the airport you're not ill I'm not going to help you um and I noticed that this was a story because it had happened to me so many times and so I picked up on it and I called her and I spoke to her and the story ended up doing really well and it went around the world and the airport wasn't very happy and they looked at the footage of of her going through the airport and they called in a disability expert to look at the footage of her going through the airport and they came back to me and said things like, well, she was wearing shoes that had one inch heels. So, you know, how much pain can she have been in? And, well, she was able to pull her suitcase and she said she could, she needed help carrying up the stairs, but she was pulling her suitcase for a little bit. And I was the one having to say, okay, um, with this condition, you can pull things. You just can't lift things because that's when your arms will fall out. And actually she had plantar fasciitis, which is, linked to Ehlers-Danlos syndrome foot pain where you're actually encouraged to wear heels and it's kind of like I feel I kind of have to be an advocate as well as a journalist actually to explain that actually people do have different needs and don't have to look like the stereotypical person who and they was like, well she was able to walk well yeah that's the point that's why she needed a wheelchair from the airport that's why she didn't come in her own wheelchair but we all know that and you should know that and your training should include talking about things like this so i think it's really important to to um to keep fighting and keep making a fuss when things like this happens and i also think from my point of view as well i'm very very open about everything that i've gone through whether that's reactions that I had to to medication that I was on like horrendous constipation um and then soiling myself in a field in Tuscany when I came off one of those drugs and things I think it's really important to talk about that because I'm not embarrassed by that kind of thing and chronic pain and invisible illness can be well any illness can be incredibly 
it's a really solitary experience and it can be incredibly lonely and you don't know what other people are going through because you're not asking them and you can't see what other people are, have, are going through. So I think if you feel like oversharing massively, as I do and always have done, then I think it's really nice to just put that out there. If someone wants to listen to it and read it and take it in, they can. If they don't and they just think I'm oversharing about my bowels, then that's up to them. I did have an and have an email actually from someone who read a story that I'd written where I talked about constipation from drugs who was arguing with whether I really could have been that constipated. And I was like, <laughs> what? we're actually entering into a discussion about my bowel habits. Thanks. So I, I love I, feedback from the internet. He <laughs> sent it to the managing editor of the newspaper. Um, so I had to kind of filter it back through him. But I think if you, if you can do that and you want to do that, I think it's really important to do that for lots of reasons. And on that note, where can <laughs> our listeners find you on the internet? maybe to send feedback about your personal <laughs> stories <laughs> or just to follow where you're going on Instagram? Um, I'm not really on Instagram at the moment anyway because um, a colleague of mine told me that I was no good at it and I should probably stop. <laughs> I'm on Twitter um, and my Twitter handle is Julia the Last. And Alicia? I'm more on Instagram than Twitter and I also had a friend tell me you should probably not be on Twitter anymore so I'm the opposite. Um, not very good at that but on Instagram my handle is Kez, like L-E-E-S-H-Y-K-E-Z and then Wheelies Around the World is also on um, my personal page. There's like a link to it in my bio. If you want to read Alicia's story or any of the other incredible women who were included in our Women Who Travel package or check out Julia's previous writing for us, you can just go to seeandtraveler.com. I am at ohheytheremayor on Instagram and Twitter. And I am at Hannah on Instagram and at Arikoglu on Twitter. But I'd, I would follow my Instagram. <laughs> We have a really exciting season coming up for you guys on Women Who Travel. Please review us on iTunes, message us, email us, just send us all the feedback. Um, we have a really exciting episode coming next week. We will be recording live from Austin at South by Southwest. And so we're really excited about that. We're excited about the things to come. And we hope you are too. Thank you guys so much for joining us. And we'll see you next week. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new a translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> I'm Tanya Mosley. 
1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.